From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. The best way to support the show is by booking a Disneyland, Walt Disney World, Disney Cruise Line, or Adventures by Disney Vacation with Dreams Unlimited Travel. Get a free no-obligation quote today for your next dream vacation at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hey there, hi there, ho there, and welcome to episode 280 of Connecting with Walt. I am your host and Diz historian, Michael Bowling. I am joined by my co-host, executive producer, and good friend, Craig Williams. Craig, how are you today? I'm doing great. How are you, Michael? I am doing well. So my, one of my cats is recovering from a cold. Oh no! <laughs> I know. I, I, I don't think I've ever had a cat with a cold before. Hey, I <laughs> was going to ask the question: Is that a normal thing? I mean, I, I guess dogs can get colds too. I mean, yeah. I've had times where my dogs are clearly under the weather, but <laughs> better the cat than you. How about yes. we say that? <laughs> yes, yes. She has allergies. She gets seasonal allergies. It's Aurora, my Siamese. Yeah, it's- and but she had a full blown cold and all that. She's better today. Yeah, our our dogs get have allergies to some uh, random random things. Sometimes food. Sometimes just when the the pollen gets bad here in the the springtime and it gets all over their paws, they'll just start like chewing them apart and scratching their faces. And I always feel terrible. I'm like, I I can't help it. <laughs> it's just. <laughs> It's it's the cards you were dealt. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But she's back to her old self now. So good. Otherwise, everything is going well. So Perfect. well, in this episode of Connecting with Walt, we are returning to our series on Walt's Nine Old Men with an examination of the life and work of Milt Call. Now, Disney legend and animator Andreas Deja has said that the Disney style that influenced the studio's animated films beginning in the the renaissance sort of of films in the 1940s was most influenced by the art styles of Ub Iwerks, Fred Moore, and Milt Kahl. Um, another of, I guess that would be more the golden age, because now we consider the renaissance to be the 1980s. So another of Walt's nine old men, Ollie Johnston, compared Call's drawings to Michelangelo's. Each of the nine old men had their talents and excelled in many ways, but the honor for best draftsmanship would go to Milk Call. And Call would have been the first to agree. He once said in an interview, I didn't have any limitations. I could do anything. Call was influenced by the styles of modern artists like Ronald Searle and Pablo Picasso and taught many modern-day artists, including Andreas Deja, Brad Bird, and Don Bluth. Other Disney animators like Frank Thomas, Ollie Johnson, and John Lounsbury often sought out the advice of Milk Call. 
His friend and animator Richard Williams considered Call to be an extraordinary talent. Was there anyone Call admitted to admiring? Whilst most of the nine old men would struggle with their drawings that were often influenced by Call, there were exceptions who were admired by Call, including Mark Davis, whose fine draftsmanship was esteemed by Call, Ward Kimball, another excellent draftsman who followed his own artistic path, and John Lounsbury, who could follow even the most complex of Call's designs. Milt Irwin Call was born on March 12th, 1909 in San Francisco, California, to Erwin Call, who emigrated from Germany when he was 20, and Grace Call, whose parents emigrated from Birmingham, England. Richard Williams once told Call that his talent came from his father's German precision and his mother's English humor. They had two daughters, Dorothy and Marion, and one son, Milt. The family was very poor, and when he was young, Milt developed rickets due to malnourishment, which left him with a pronounced hump on his back. Irwin would abandon his family, and afterwards Milt's parents divorced. Despite his father attempting to re-enter Milt's life when Milt was married with his own children, Milt never forgave his father. Milt admitted he may have inherited his drawing skills from his father, who often drew car leasing and rental newspaper ads for his employers. But Milt was dismissive about it, and once stated his father was uneducated and had no formal artistic training at all. Grace remarried to a man named McKinnon, and they had two daughters, Audrey and Gladys, and the family moved to Oakland, California. The family still had very little money. And Milt disliked his stepfather, describing him as vulgar and a little bantam rooster. Milt attended elementary school at Horace Mann School in San Francisco, then went to Fremont High School in the East Bay, but dropped out of school when he was 16 to earn money for his family. His first job was delivering prescriptions on bicycle, and then he worked at an engraving company. Call's lack of formal education would always bother him. His daughter, Sybil, believed her father's compulsiveness about being right was a compensation for his lack of education. Call would challenge himself by timing how long it took him to complete crossword puzzles. Learning to play chess by mail, he would often have six games going on at the same time. He was an avid reader and became an outstanding fly fisherman, tying his own flies. When he was 16, Call got a job in the art department of the Oakland Post-Inquirer, which later became the Oakland Tribune before ceasing publication in 2016 and being absorbed into the East Bay Times. Call was hired to do paste-ups, layouts, photo retouching, and spot cartoons for $25 per week. He would also cover local boxing matches in Oakland Barns, then write about them and draw the results for the paper's sports section. Whilst working at the Inquirer, Call developed a friendship with an 18-year-old Cal Berkeley graduate named Hamilton Lusk, who drew a two-by-four-inch cartoon column about local merchants. This friendship would change the course of Call's life. After three years at the Inquirer, Call took a job at the San Francisco Bulletin in 1928 at $40 per week, 
which was quickly raised to 45. In 1929, the stock market crashed and the San Francisco Bulletin was purchased by William Randolph Hearst, who merged it with the San Francisco Call. As a result of this merger, Call lost, uh, Call lost his job. The San Francisco Call was spelled C-A-L-L. <laughs> Just <laughs> no when you're listening to, to this, yeah. <laughs> you're wondering. And the paper was renamed the San Francisco Call Bulletin. Actually, it was still around when I was a little boy, actually. A very wordy newspaper, but look at that. William Randolph Hearst just ruining everything. But, (laughs) I mean, for the better in this situation, as we'll find out. (laughs) Thanks to a friend, Carl quickly got a job with the Fox West Coast Theaters drawing car cards, which were movie advertisements for the front of streetcars. Call's talent impressed his bosses, and he was moved to drawing theater ads for newspapers. However, Call's temper got him fired from his job after he got angry with a theater manager who would not honor tickets Call had left at the box office for a friend. Call freelanced for a while and shared a penthouse studio with artist Frederick Ludkins, who was an art director for the Lloyd and Thomas Ad Agency. Call drew advertisements for them, and Ludkins helped Call with his artistic style. Call also attended art classes studying figure drawing at night. Towards the end of 1933, illustration jobs became scarce as newspaper and magazines started to use photographs rather than commercial illustrations. By this time, Hamilton Lusk had become a successful animator with the Walt Disney Studio and he suggested Call join him. Call always enjoyed comic strips and newspapers and took Lusk's invitation very seriously. So seriously that Call decided to go see the Three Little Pigs. He was enthralled by the cartoon short. He appreciated the film's social symbolism, especially because the wolf was quite literally at Call's door during the Depression. He also liked the technicolor vibrancy of the colors in the film. Call had another reason for wanting a steady full-time job. His The year before, he had fallen in love with Laura Nordquist from Kellogg, Idaho, who was living with her sister in San Francisco. She had a degree in journalism from the University of Idaho. Even though she had more formal education than Call, they had much in common and loved spending time together. Call was hired by the Walt Disney Studio on June 25, 1934, and very soon afterwards, Milt and Laura were married. It's uh, very, very loose, but I I don't know. I'm kind of getting some vibes that there's a a lot of resemblance to even Walt's story. I mean, not necessarily uh, failing in the same ways, but just having that that bad luck that eventually pushed him into the, the next direction and starting to go in the right way and then eventually finding the right person to be with and and sometimes that's a that's a huge huge help to success when when you have that that partner whether it's a business partner or a partner in life so mm-hmm. yeah it's just just a, a, a nice little coincidence there but you know it also makes sense that uh, that Walt was going to find people who 
kind of had a, a similar path to him in different ways, had the same, uh, same, same issues as they're trying to find success in, in a very, very difficult time for the United States. So mm-hmm. very yeah. interesting. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. Yeah. And his friendship with Hamilton Lusk, yeah, pointed him in a direction. Yeah. Just, uh, I mean, he just, yeah, it's like he just kept failing upwards in a way. Yeah. Like he just got lucky that with every little, uh, every little tribulation that he faced and anger that he had, it just pushed him in the right direction to, to get to a, a very, very good place. Uh, not a lot of people out there. I feel like can say that, then yeah, you know, it's my, my temper and my anger and my failures really got me to where I wanted to go. That's mm-hmm. not a, common story (laughs) yeah so call started out as an in-betweener at twenty dollars a week so he took a big pay cut as many of the young animators did at this time and and he quickly advanced to assistant animator working under bill roberts call enjoyed the competition and the give and take between the artists Vladimir Bill Teitla was hired at the same time as Call, but was five years older and considered one of the best animators in New York. Call was assigned to work on Teitla's first Disney film, 1935's Mickey's Fire Brigade. When Call introduced himself to Teitla as one of his in-betweeners, Teitla responded, Oh yeah? What scenes have you screwed up lately? <laughs> Call's ambition was evident from the beginning. After a week at the studio, he bought a stopwatch to time people as they walked. At the studio's art classes held by Don Graham, he disagreed with Graham on just about everything he taught about drawing, despite thinking Graham was a fine instructor. When Ken Anderson first met Call at the studio in 1934, he recalled that Call's language was, quote, peppered with cuss words, unquote. Anderson remembered Call as being the bad boy of the in-betweener pool, whose displays of musical farting included the ability to perform the opening bars of the Star-Spangled Banner. His performances took place in the lavatory next to the in-betweener's room against the ventilated plywood doors separating the two rooms. Once Walt was touring some important guests through the studio, and they stopped in the in-betweener's room. As Walt stood next to the lavatory door, explaining to his guests what in-betweeners do, Call began one of his performances, not realizing Walt was on the other side of the door. At the conclusion of his performance, Call opened the door and asked, How was that? Walt and his guests left quickly and without comment. How do you even recover from that? I, <laughs> I mean, but the way Anderson told the story was so hilarious. I mean, I was just burst out laughing when I read his quote yeah. on this because he, he he said things like, you know, Milt opened the door flush with excitement and all this. I mean, it was a hoot. So, oh, man. Well, yeah. I mean... <laughs> And definitely a way to to make an impression, but that's <laughs> man, I, I 
I, I don't I don't know how <laughs> I would ever personally get over that. I would just be so embarrassed for the rest of my life in front of Walt. Jeez. Oh, yeah, I I just don't think. Um, I don't know. Just from what I've been reading about Milk Call, I, I don't know if he was embarrassed. <laughs> <There's>, <laughs> I, like like I told you before we went on. You know, we recorded. There was a lot I had to leave out of this script. <laughs> yeah. Hey, you did say that. So, <laughs> hey, more power to him to uh, yeah. to just let something like that roll off his back, not be a big deal. I mean, mm-hmm. good good for him. I wish yeah. I was the same way. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. But Star Spangled Banner, that's pretty impressive. <laughs> yeah, it's I'm, not an easy song. I've yeah. I've heard it live plenty of times. You got to hit some notes. Oh, the way he performed it? Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, Call learned the craft of animation very quickly and rose to the position of animator. Director Ben Sharpstein assigned Call some small sequences of animation in 1936's Mickey's Circus. Sharpstein insisted Call create pose drawings for each scene to show him what Call intended to do for each scene. Call brought his drawings to Sharpstein, who looked at them, then stared out his window for a long time. Call sweated and prepared for the worst. Sharpstein turned to him and said, All right. That looks pretty good. Mark Davis recalled meeting Call when he was animating in the Annex, which was a training building across the street from the Hyperion Studio. And, and if you've been to the studio, the current, the Burbank Studio, you know that Annex is one of the buildings they brought over and is still oh, at yeah. the Burbank Studio. A wild. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Call was working in a bullpen in the annex that he shared with junior animators Ken Anderson, Frank Thomas, Ollie Johnston, and James Algar. A rivalry immediately started between them as they were encouraged to compete for scenes to animate. Anderson later recalled that Call usually got the choice animation assignments, and many of them are still being studied by today's animators. Call worked on several shorts, including 1935's Mickey Service Station, 1936's Elmer Elephant, 1937's Lonesome Ghosts, 1938's Farmyard Symphony, and Ferdinand the Bull. As an inside joke, Call was cast as the voice of the gentle Ferdinand, in stark contrast to his own personality. <laughs> When Snow White went into full production, Call was moved to the main studio across the street, where he animated the animals, along with Eric Larson, Louis Schmidt, and James Algar. Call remembered, We had one big room where all of us animal boys were. Call worked out the timing of a turtle falling down the stairs with the pianist and songwriter Frank Churchill. Churchill worked out the musical pattern that helped Call decide how the turtle would be animated. Call was also assigned to animate some of the scenes with the prince that would lead to similar assignments because of his skill with drawing and animating the human figure. Call had a tremendous amount of respect for Frank Churchill and said he was the best person they had um, in the music department at the studio. So, 
It would be Call's work on Pinocchio that would bring him to the attention of Walt Disney. The animators were struggling with the design of the character Pinocchio. And initially, the story artists and Fred Moore were approaching his appearance and movements as a puppet, as depicted in the original book, and it didn't make him a very appealing character. Production was halted as Walt considered how to make Pinocchio more appealing. Milt Call, who was outspoken and opinionated on what should be done, was discussing this problem with Ham Lusk, who was the director. Lusk said that instead of just complaining, Call should do something to solve the problem. Lusk suggested Call should redesign the character and animate a test on his own. Call's approach to Pinocchio was instead of drawing Pinocchio as a puppet, to draw and animate him as a little boy, and then draw in his wooden joints afterwards. This would make the character of Pinocchio much more acceptable and likable, but still a wooden puppet. Call animated a scene of Pinocchio with donkey ears under the sea, walking up to a large oyster, knocking on its shell, and asking if he knew where Monstro was. The frightened oyster snapped its shell shut, causing a swell of the water that pushed Pinocchio back. Walt liked this scene, and Call's fine graphic style much better than what Fred Moore had created. This would mark the beginning of Call's domination in character creation and his rise at the studio. It also marked the beginning of Fred Moore's descent at the studio. No longer would animators go to Fred Moore to copy or admire his drawings or ask for his advice. Walt assigned Milt Call, Ollie Johnston, and Frank Thomas as the main animators of Pinocchio. Call would be the new draftsman and animator, more formidable than Moore ever could or wanted to be. Moore was assigned to animate Lampwick, which was said to be a self-caricature. Call's reputation with Walt and everyone who worked at the studio was made by Pinocchio. For the next 40 years, Call was Disney's graphic style, a fact that Call proudly proclaimed. Call's next assignment was Bambi, and in Frank Thomas's opinion, was the best work he ever did at the studio, especially in his animation of Thumper. The voice of Thumper was a young boy who had to be fed his lines and had trouble remembering some of them, which caused hesitation in the recordings. Call was able to use this hesitation in the timing of the animation to capture the mood in Thumper of Thumper and the change in mood of Thumper as he recites what his father had said to him that morning. And this made the scene successful. And we all remember when Thumper's mother says, what did your father tell you today? And he says, if you can't say anything nice, and then he stops and takes that big, (laughs) deep breath. That was not planned. That was Peter, the little boy that was recording the lines, forgetting the line, and then being fed the line again. And instead of editing it out, Milt used it. And that added to the charm of, of Thumper. Oh yeah, no. I mean, that's that's so much character development for Thumper mm-hmm. right there. The mm-hmm. that 
I, I mean, it's a natural way that people speak, but especially uh, little boys, about, mm-hmm. especially little boys. And well, mm-hmm. in my case, uh, grown adults who start talking <laughs> before they know everything that they want to say. But uh, I just think that that is that is so incredible, because if there's one criticism you can, you can give to movies, television, it's that sometimes uh, people strive for perfection and especially in the animated world where you can keep doing take after take after take get the perfect audio that you want get that that just that that right sound that you're looking for in the voice and overdo it so to hear that literally he took what should have been just thrown out and considered discarded or worked around to get the best parts of it and used it to make the character what the character was to become that's you know that that's that's foresight that that's on like the director level not even just as an animator i mean you're you're working in a in a complete different way at that level so very very impressive yeah yeah next week we're going to talk more about some of the characters he's most well known for but there is a scene he animates in pinocchio um jimmy cricket Remember, Pinocchio's going off to school, and Jiminy Cricket will oversleeps, and he wakes up, and he's running after Pinocchio as he puts on his clothes. Yeah. That Milt Call animated that whole scene. Wow. It is brilliant when you have someone dressing as they're running, out of breath, and talking. And uh, I mean, it was, and, yeah. it was magnificent. Magnificent animation. Oh, absolutely. And, yeah. So, um, yeah, one of those scenes where, like, as you, you say, you, you describe it, but I think any of us out there that are even casual fans of Pinocchio can immediately, immediately think of think of that exact moment. It's because that's what some of those classics are. They're they're a lot of those truly memorable animated scenes that that you kind of take for granted, but you don't realize how much they actually have an impact on those movies mm-hmm. overall. So it's yeah. uh, very, very impressive. Yeah, absolutely. Now the deer in Snow White had been described as grain sacks on legs. Concessions had to be made from realistic deer in order to be able to animate them for Bambi. So Call redesigned Bambi's head so he had full expression. He used squash and stretch and changed the shape of the deer's head and gave it new set of proportions. He also streamlined the the look of Thumper, giving him a child's range of expression. Now, Call never used rotoscoping for his work and disliked extensive use of live-action film references for animation. So what he did was he would study some live-action film, and then he would make notes on his analysis and then use those notes for his animation. That's uh, that's like next level. I mean, I'm not not saying, you know, a ton of uh, the animators were using rotoscoping and in Disney, constantly, Disney, you know, they were not, it was really yeah, it, frowned upon. But I mean, it's, it's just another thing that makes that, that studio stand out. It's uh, yeah. It, you can't help, but be amazed by, by the, the technical skill that, that he clearly had mm-hmm. with all of this. And when you think, and again, we'll get into this more next week for Madame Medusa, his last character, 
that he animated studio. He used no live action reference. Oh, good. That was wow. all him creating her. Good for him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. During World War II, Call worked with Frank Thomas on propaganda films, including 1941's Education of Death and the Winged Scourge, featuring the Seven Dwarfs, demonstrating how to control malaria-infected mosquitoes. Ollie Johnston believed that Call's animation of the dwarfs in this film had more subtlety than what Fred Moore and Bill Teitla had done in the feature film. 1943 Saludos Amigos was the first film resulting from Walt Disney's Good Neighbor Policy Tour of South America and showed off Call's lighter side. When tourist Donald Duck visits Lake Titicaca in the Andes, he tries to communicate with a llama using a flute. Doesn't go quite as planned, and Call effectively expresses the llama's thoughts through pantomime and choreography. So, and that is a great sequence with yeah. that, with that llama, especially. So, yeah, um, funny stuff. Has a lot of disdain for Donald Duck. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's easy to have disdain for Donald. <laughs> so. Now, Call's colleagues had long claimed that he could not handle the studio's more outlandish characters. So Call welcomed the opportunity to animate the tiger in the 1945 goofy short Tiger Trouble. The results were so hilarious that these comments were quieted forever. Call had proven he could animate anything better than anyone else. I had to look this up. This is on YouTube. It is hilarious. The tiger, the, the, the animation, the, the gags and that Call created are masterful. I mean, it it makes it makes this this goofy short. Yeah, so I think I have a memory of it. I mean, I've I've seen every short, so I've had to watch it before. But this one didn't jump out to me as much. Mm-hmm. But I like I can picture a kind of more cartoonish lion, so or tiger, not mm-hmm. lion. Um, but yeah, I need I need to watch it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's worth looking looking up, watching it. Call didn't particularly enjoy his post-war assignments. He found Johnny Appleseed and Make My Music too mild of a character to be interesting. Uh, Pecos Bill's girlfriend, Slewfoot Sue, in Melody Time bored him, except for her sassy walk with swinging hips. Although he also animated Pecos Bill. So he, um, that was a lot more fun. Um, yeah. However, Call did not slack off when his assignments didn't interest him. Instead, he worked even harder to make the character or action more interesting. He would often say, I'm not a lazy bastard. He would accuse others of being one. But <laughs> <laughs> When the studio returned to animated features in the 1950s, Call was elated and found the work more interesting. He said, oh, God, everyone was delighted to get back to work on something that was important. For the next two decades, Call was responsible for the final design of most of the characters. He would complain about being saddled with animating damnable non-comic human characters who were difficult to move believably, like Cinderella, her prince, the king and the duke, Alice, Peter Pan and Wendy, Princess Aurora and her prince, the king, and so on. 
There were those who thought King Call, or the Mighty Milt, as some called him, protested too much. According to Frank Thomas, Milt took any scene that no one else could draw. He had to be pretty sure that not only could no one else draw it, but everyone else in the studio knew that no one else could draw it. Call's standards were incredibly high, and he drove himself with an unbelievable intensity. He would think about scenes for a long time, then make dozens of thumbnail sketches for staging and poses. Behind his closed door could be heard angry mutterings, paper being pulled violently off the light table's peg bars, paper being crumpled and thrown into the wastebasket, then the wastebasket being kicked. Then pencils would be sharpened along with more muttering. Frank Thomas observed, when he blew up and trampled his drawings in the wastebasket, it was real frustration, self-criticism, feeling of being inadequate, pure concentrated torture. Call once explained, when I'm exploring what I'm going to do with a sequence, I'll thumbnail it out. I'll figure out all of my business and any staging. By the time I start animating, I know exactly what I'm going to do. I'm not going to surprise myself. I'm going to stick to that plan pretty much. And he, once when an animator said he didn't want to do that much work in all the planning, oh gosh, call tune him out. I could not include what call said in the script, <laughs> but um, he laid him low yeah, for that. I- Hey, for everyone out there listening, I pushed Michael to say that we need to do an unedited episode with all the things that uh, that Mitt was saying. So that way we can hear the the real truth to it all. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, the the connecting with Walt after midnight. Yeah, big warning. (laughs) This one's not for kids. So. Over the years, people from top animators to assistant animators and layout artists would be sent by a director to call for help. Said John Lounsbury, if you want your scene to look good, go get one drawing from Milt. Said assistant animator Dale Oliver, he could do one drawing for a scene and it would set you up for days to come. Milt was always out of patience, said Don Bluth. Just go draw the damn thing, he'd say, as if everybody could do it. Whilst working on Robin Hood, Bluth asked for a drawing and Carl reportedly swore and yelled continually as he drew it. But another animator said um, it was important to listen to what he was swearing and yelling because you could usually learn something from it. (laughs) (laughs) I was actually going to ask that if he was... You know, with with his uh, testing his patience when he was finally doing all this work for other people, as we've now heard multiple times in a row here, was he actually at least advising them of what to do? Because it's, you know, it's one thing to get angry and ornery when you're being asked to do stuff and, and then also not give feedback so people have to keep relying on you. But I, I would hope at the very least that he was saying, like, no, this is what you need to do and yes. walk through that way. Yeah. What I heard one when I did my research, one animator said, you were very foolish if you didn't listen to him when he was yelling yeah. or swearing or whatever, because he was giving you advice and yeah. help in all of that. Had to listen between the words. <laughs> yes. Yes. 
Milt was very, very tough to talk with, said Dale Oliver. He was a moody gentleman. Sometimes you'd walk in and he'd be just marvelous, helpful. Other times you'd be met with expletive and four-letter words, and you knew you'd better get out. Assistant animator Jane Bear said, said, call, was Jekyll and Hyde or could be. He was always polite and nice with ladies. With the guys, he could literally pick them up and throw them out into the hall. Then doors would slam and the whole D-wing would be silent. You could hear a pin drop. However, if Call liked something, he would use the same amount of energy for praise and was just as verbal. He appreciated and praised hard work. Call was always honest and vented his feelings. He set the pace for quality and demanded that everyone keep it. Some may have thought he was unreasonable, but his attitude is what made Disney films of this era what they were. Call was particularly harsh and outspoken in his critiques of two of his fellow nine old men, Les Clark and John Lounsbury. He went out of his way to criticize the gentle and insecure John Lounsbury in public, said Call during an on-camera interview for a television show. Lounsbury was a very good animator for slapstick stuff, but if you gave him a scene that had any subtlety to it, he'd fall on his face. I could do stuff that Lounsbury would do, you know. I could do it better than that, better than he did. He had his limitations. In an interview with author Christopher Finch about Lounsbury, Call said, he's real good on some stuff and in some stuff he can't do. I, on the other hand, can do anything. Well, good to know he wasn't egotistical at all. <laughs> no, no. He, he, he knew his capabilities. Yeah. In defense of John Lounsbury, Frank Thomas said, Lounsbury could imitate anybody's style of drawing. Therefore, he was often chosen to follow up Call's characters because he's good enough to follow Milt. Call's criticism of Lounsbury was seen as a way of protecting his own reputation as the greatest. Mark Davis was Call's best friend at the studio. Alice Davis once said, Brothers couldn't be closer, and the only animator whose draftsmanship he respected and praised was Mark's. Of Davis, Call said, Mark is such a damn fine artist, you know, an excellent draftsman. He makes me look sick as far as that's concerned. Until he moved to Wed Enterprises, Davis's office was next door to Call's, and he had access to him at all times. Often those wishing to see Call would first consult Davis. A silent shake of the head signaled it was not a good time. A quick, yep meant it was safe to go in. Davis specialized in animating human figures, and he was a good partner with Call's animation assignments. Davis assisted Call with animating Cinderella, Alice, Wendy, and Princess Aurora. Davis is best known for animating Tinkerbell, Maleficent, and Cruella Deville. Davis and Call worked together on characters that had contact with each other in films. So Call animated Peter Pan to Davis's Tinkerbell, the Prince to Davis's Maleficent, Roger to Davis's Cruella Deville. This was complicated animation that required difficult collaboration, and Davis later said he did not recall having any problems with Call. 
Given his volatile temper, you might wonder what Calls and Walt Disney's relationship was like. It was one of mutual respect. Of Walt, Calls said, the man was a genius and we all recognized it. Walt acknowledged Call's critical position in the studio, and when coming to Call's office would often ask, where's the genius? Call often played chess at lunchtime, and if he was losing, would knock the chessboard over in anger. If Walt wanted to come down and see Call, he would call down in advance to ask his assistants how Call did at chess. If he won, Walt would come down. If Call had lost, Walt would give Call a couple of days to cool off before he came down to see him. Call once talked about an interaction he had with Walt during the production of Peter Pan. Walt called Call to complain that in some scenes, Pan Pan looked too old and muscular. According to Call, Walt said, what the hell's the matter? To which Call replied, you really want to know what's wrong? You don't have any damn talent in the place. That's what's wrong. Call talked about his relationship with Walt, saying, I don't think anyone had to worry about talking back to Walt if he had a point. Walt was anything but difficult to work with. When you were having a conflict with Walt, you were having a conflict with somebody who probably had more on the ball than you had, and whose judgment was probably better. It was a hell of a lot easier than trying to get a point over to someone who couldn't understand what you were talking about. In the mid-1950s, Walt's interest in films decreased as he focused on the design and construction of Disneyland. Walt started to recruit animators to work on Disneyland. After working on 101 Dalmatians, Walt asked Mark Davis to work on Disneyland, and he never returned to animation. Call became concerned when Walt recruited Ken Anderson to work on designs for Disneyland. Call told Walt that Anderson was the strongest art director they had, and animation was their priority. So Walt allowed Anderson to work on 101 Dalmatians. Later on, Walt wanted Anderson to work on the It's a Small World attraction for the New York World's Fair. Call phoned Walt and told him he couldn't have Anderson. Walt responded, I only want him for two weeks, goddammit. Call snapped back, you borrowed Mark Davis for two weeks and we'll never see, and we've never seen him again. According to Call, Walt was not used to having an employee tell him how to run his business and exploded, telling Call he was getting too big for his britches and that he was an overbearing bastard. After hanging up, Walt called Anderson and told him to forget about the World's Fair. Call's talent was so important to the studio that it protected him, even from Walt's anger. I just have to say, if if this is the edited version, this <laughs> is, we would have really been. <laughs> this is the edited version. <laughs> we would have been in for a treat with mm-hmm. the uh, the the full version. Man, that's uh, a lot of lot of language flying back and forth there. Yeah, a lot of emotion. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. You know, passion, <laughs> emotion, uh, dedication, all of that going back and forth between the two. But Walt knew how to handle Call when he was in one of his rages. Call would get upset over an incident and have an outburst and head down the hall for Walt's office. He'd demand to immediately see Walt, and Walt would agree to see him. He would allow Call to vent and even incite him a bit. 
Call would threaten to quit. Walt would laugh and then start calming Call down in lavish praise, telling him how he was a wonderful artist, a genius. No one could do what he could do. Call would leave Walt's office feeling on top of the world. Walt would send him to the studio nurse for a vitamin B12 shot. By the time Call returned to his office, he would be in a sunny mood. (laughs) So in our next episode, we'll continue our look at the life and career of Milk Call and examine some of the characters that he brought to life. So, so Craig, was this your, your first introduction to the, to the life and career of Milk Call? You know, I've obviously read a little bit about him and some of the biographies on Walt and, uh, you know, that as he's been brought up randomly and sporadically on this show, but I will say this is opening up a new window (laughs) to, (laughs) to his life. And I'm, I'm kind of loving it. And honestly, I think it is because of the brashness. Uh, it's the talent that he also had. And, you know, there's part of me that says like just the way he was reinforces that uh, just because Disney made a lot of great entertainment for family, it didn't change the fact that this was a bunch of adults uh, that were professional artists and, and very talented people who were putting this stuff together. And sometimes uh, the, the art that is created always doesn't represent necessarily the artist. And I think that is a a perfect way to describe Mick Call because uh, he would have been on the forefront of uh, more R-rated material if if he would have been uh, imbuing his personality a little bit more in what he was doing. But I I, I love that. It's, it grounds that, you know, everything at Disney isn't just a bunch of adults uh, playing, playing, you know, like they're Peter Pan acting like they're still young. And even if they know how to have fun like that, it's there, there's, there's some seriousness to it all. So I'm, I'm fascinated to learn more about him. Yeah. And, you know, you see the studio photographs of them smiling, you know, as they're, they're pretending to draw one of their characters that they had pre-drawn already. And, yeah. and you know, and everybody what? looks so happy and all that. And you realize they were competitive. They had their personalities. It was an old boys club. It was sort of like a, sometimes frat boys. And so there, there was a lot of, lot of, lot of personality going on there. And um, mm-hmm. it wasn't always sunny and happy. And all that, even though they all had a tremendous, they did have a tremendous respect for each other. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, maybe not towards, uh, towards uh, Lounsbury there, but uh, th- th- for the most part, there was yeah. respect. Well, I think everyone else <laughs> had a great respect for Lounsbury. And I think no call did. And that maybe he was afraid of maybe being a little overshadowed. Yeah, I, I, I think you were right with the ins- with the assessment of that. That he just he wanted to keep his name on the top, and you know what? That's we we see it in politics. We see it in sports. Mm-hmm. The the people who are on top, they stay on top by uh, striking down on mm-hmm. anyone who even potentially could be a threat. So it, yeah. it's probably more or less that. But I I, I like this aspect. I like. I like exactly what you said that it wasn't just always sunny there, that this was, this was artists truly competing and making each other better and 
we all benefited mm-hmm. from that internal conflict that you know we don't we don't really know about because in our minds it's Disney. Everything was happy. They all loved what they were doing. They all worked so well together. I, I like that we're getting the the uh, more realistic picture of what it was actually like with this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's fun. It's been fun learning about Milk Cough. So, but we'll get we'll get much more um, into him next week, especially in the latter half of his career and his departure from Disney, what he did afterwards with his life, because he didn't draw that much because he saw drawing his work. So he didn't carry around a sketchbook all the time the way like Mark Davis did and some of the other animators. So he got into other things. I so. will talk about that next week, but mm-hmm. I, I appreciate that. It's it's nice to know that there are some people who can, you know, put put it all down and leave work to the side, take vacations. I'm trying to take that advice more and more that, hey, you you can stop. You don't have to do everything 24 hours a day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But now it's time for this week in Disney history. All right. Well, I've already forgotten who goes first. (laughs) We're only like three weeks into it. I think it's you this time, though, isn't it? Because did you go first the last couple of times? I, yeah, that's tough. I know week one, uh, you ended up having to go first because I chose from the wrong month. <laughs> and then maybe, maybe I went, I, I'm prepared to go first anyway. Okay. So I'm jumping kind of more towards the end of the, the next calendar week with it. But uh, I feel like what I want to talk about is kind of timely. I've seen it on uh, Twitter lately and just kind of out there in the atmosphere and think it's worth being brought up but uh i'm jumping to february 3rd of 1986 because on that day uh, pixar and uh you know pixar and lucasfilm their little partnership that they had uh and that's when it all ended and pixar kind of went out on their own and uh, a, a really big day obviously uh you know that's leaving kind of papa lucasfilm for behind and and moving on to become the Pixar that we actually know it and not just this this arm of Lucasfilm that that kept it alive there and the reason why I mean it's important is obviously it it was part of the catalyst to get Pixar where it was with the movies but another thing that I've been seeing online more and more lately that now I'm starting to question it too is why in the heck hasn't Pixar started partnering up with Lucasfilm now that it's all under the same umbrella and start creating Star Wars movies that are under the Pixar branding? And I mean, even the same for, for Marvel and all that. Like, I know, I know Pixar does its own thing, but specifically with Lucasfilm, like that would be such a cool coming together that Pixar wouldn't. I mean, it wouldn't exist without without its place in Lucasfilm's history. And now it's all under the same company. And how neat would it be for Pixar and Lucasfilm to be kind of one together and create a Star Wars, Indiana Jones movie, some some sort of movie under that Pixar animation brand. And I, I'm kind of ready for that now. You know, it's we we can get Toy Story five and and whatever sequels they have 
to throw at us in in the near near future. But I would love to see them take a crack at at other properties that Disney owns just just for the heck of it. I don't, I don't think Walt Disney Animation is going to do it. So I would I would love for Pixar to to kind of go out of their their wheelhouse a little bit and yeah be and take that on or maybe even do a series like you know they did clone like clone wars or something like that do a star wars series or something yeah it's and a lot like one of the things i saw about it was people pointing out like they they did star wars visions on disney plus which was working with uh japanese animation studios to to create that uh, that unique Japanese style for Star Wars stories in that way, and I'm like, yeah. So technically, it's not a new concept for Lucasfilm to go out and do that, but it is a new concept. It would be a new concept for Pixar, and I, you know, I have nothing against Pixar movies, and we've talked the past couple weeks of how exciting it is. Some of their movies getting a theatrical release after being shunned during the pandemic and apparently uh, they're being shunned during the theatrical. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Things started light with soul. We'll have to see where it goes, but I, I mean, elemental ended up doing very, very well and just got nominated for, Mm -hmm. for an Academy award. So Pixar it's, you know, they're not doing anything wrong necessarily. But I would love to see them challenge themselves in that way. And then maybe also we find a successful way to, to revitalize Star Wars in a bigger way that's not Mandalorian. And, you know, maybe maybe hush some people that just want uh, the same, you know, the same familiar Skywalker stories over and over again or stuff that's familiar. You know, maybe maybe you can actually get that through Pixar. So mm-hmm. I, I know. It went way beyond just this week, but I I am very interested to see if Disney ever does anything like this because yeah, it is it's a part of the history of Pixar and Lucasfilm, and important to remember they could they could reignite something at any point in time, and I'd definitely be here to see it. Yeah, yeah, that would be interesting. So, well, let's hope Pixar's uh, fortunes pick up. Because I would hate to see them merged with, you know, with um, Disney Animation go away. I don't even put that into the into the atmosphere. Yeah. Let's, let's pack that up and throw it at the bottom of the ocean. Yeah, yeah, I agree. <laughs> I agree. Well, mine is January twenty eighth, nineteen ninety four, and this is actor and voice actor Hal Smith passes away at the age of seventy seven in Santa Monica, California, and we all know him as Otis Campbell on CBS's The Andy Griffith Show. He was the town drunk. What fascinates me about him is his his voice acting that he did. I, I dug into this a little. I knew he had done some for um, for Disney. I didn't know how much. So he voiced Al in the first four original Winnie the Pooh shorts. He voiced Disney cartoon character Goofy after Pinto Kolvig died in 1967 and including in Mickey's Christmas Carol. Um, and, and he also um, voiced Ratty in Mickey's Christmas Carol in 1981. He was, va- he was both owl and Winnie the Pooh in the short Winnie the Pooh discovers the seasons because um, Sterling Hall- Holloway, I think it passed away. Who's the voice of Pooh, but he was also in, um in, in, the uh, Pooh's Corner, 
which was an orig- a Disney Channel, one of their original series when they first launched. He was Winnie the Pooh and Al in there. And then he got replaced by another voice actor for Winnie the Pooh. But um, but he also was in um, Beauty and the Beast. He was Philippe. He was Jafar's horse in Aladdin. But then I got, he was in, he voiced almost every children's cartoon show I watched as a little boy. Huckleberry Hound Show, Quick Draw McGraw, The Bugs Bunny Show, Rocky and Bullwinkle, David and Goliath, The Flintstones, Yogi Bear, The Jetsons. I mean, oh my gosh, The McGilla Gorilla Show, The Funny Company, The Famous Adventures of Mr. Magoo. It goes on and Gumby. It goes on and on and on. Scooby-Doo, where are you? He voiced all kinds of voices. It, 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 it's, it's astonishing what this man did. Hong Kong Fooey. That was a little, I was already in high school, so I didn't watch that. But, uh, the man was versatile. And, you know, he was, he, and then he, he was also an actor. He was in all kinds of, um, of films as well throughout his career. You know, he was like in night court and, you know, all kinds of things. So anyway, but um, he even voiced video games, including Ooh. Zelda, Zelda's Adventure and Dragon's Lair 2 Time Warp. And uh, and and then he was also on radio as well. Wow. So, um, but the man had such a prolific career. So, um, oh, he was on, uh, he was in the Disney family album, that Disney, um, channel series that he, when they had an episode on voice actors, he was featured in it. Wow. So, uh, so anyway, but he was on not just, um, the, the Andy Griffith show on every major television show in the fifties and sixties, even going into the seventies, he was on every one of them. I could list them all off. You would have heard of every single one of them. I, I mean, I've, I've known everything you've said so far, but I'll yeah. be honest. I, I knew him from Andy Griffith and um, the, I can't think of what movie. It was one of the Don Knotts movies, not Incredible Mr. Limpet, but one of the other goofy ones. The Ghost he and plays, Mr. Chicken? Yeah he, yeah, he plays a drunk in that one too. So I've always, I always knew it was like very <laughs> to to Andy Griffith, so I I kind of feel bad that I that's my recollection of him, <laughs> but uh, he clearly is is way more prolific than I ever gave him credit for. So hey, yeah. good for him. Yeah. So anyway, so the next time you watch the Andy Griffith show or something, just keep in mind yeah. this man had he was also in the Jungle Book. He voiced um, a couple of characters in that as well, but he was. Just in so much. I'd say the next time you turn on a TV and there's anything from like the 1950s through, I I guess Pooh Corner was maybe late 80s. So if it's something between the 50s and the the late 80s, there's a chance that he was probably part of it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So anyway, so um, anyway, so tip of the hat to, to Hal Smith in there so you'd mentioned uh a moment ago that elemental was nominated 
for Best Animated Film. Yeah, the as of the date we're recording this, the Oscar nominations were announced. The Walt Disney Company got a few nominations. Um, Poor Things for search under the Searchlight Pictures banner. Guess was their big one. It got eleven nominations. Did you see this film? I I, I did. You did. Yeah. And, okay, you're saying that in a tone that um, you felt you could have done better things. It it wasn't for me. I the I've given the director a lot of chances with his movies because he he you know, he did the uh, the favorite a couple of years ago with Olivia Coleman and Emma Stone, and I, I think she won. Olivia Coleman won best best actress for that one, and uh, he did the the lobster movie um, with. I uh, the I can't I can't think of his name. I, I can picture him right now. The the dad and saving Mr. Banks, but just not name is slipping me. The angry oh I angry know who you mean. I know who you mean. Yeah. Wow. Well, I just I I lost it. I guess that's what happens when it starts uh, creeping this late at night. But um, anyways, I, I've seen a lot of his movies and I understand his style and his tone and. It's. I'm just at the point where I will always go see them in theaters, but it is. It's not for me. And poor things wasn't. It's a. It's a basically a kind of a take on Frankenstein mm-hmm. in a way, and I won't. I won't spoil it that much. But it's. It's basically Emma Stone running around for the first parts of the movie with being a full grown adult with the mind of a child and discovering herself and uh, finding any excuse to not have clothes on screen. And <laughs> it just, it, it was too much. And I appreciated the message of the movie and the overall take of it, but it was one of those ones where I'm like, I don't, I don't need to ever see this again. <laughs> I will, I will never watch it again. I appreciate it for the art that it is, but it was just not my form of entertainment and i you know i'm also like when i see something like this searchlight got it yeah it was disney has had control of searchlight for this long but i i want to know which disney executive actually approved this movie was was over it i feel like i feel like fox is still working pretty independently from disney as far as like the searchlight side of things because this does not seem like something that, you know, Bob Iger sitting there saying, yeah, this seems like a great idea. Let's, <laughs> let's move forward with this. I mean, it, it counts towards them. So that's, that's all that matters. But uh, it, this one was kind of a shoe win and there's, yeah, not to take this all over the place, but there's a lot of controversy today because of, of uh, Margot Robbie not getting nominated yeah. for Barbie and, uh, as well as Greta Gerwig as a director, but like I feel bad as as great as Margot was as Robbie, uh, Margot Robbie was as Barbie. The the best actress is either going to go to um, is going to go to Emma Stone for this movie, or um, I can't think of the other person. Oh, uh, um, uh, Lily Gladstone for Killers of the Flower Moon. Uh, it's I've one of those two. Name. Yeah, Bad yeah, one about. of those two is gonna is gonna win. So it's like one of those things. Yeah, it would have been nice to get the pity the pity nomination, but um, it's it's like it's already set in stone. So I, I think Disney will at least get a couple awards for for uh, <laughs> for poor things, but. I don't think they're getting one for Elemental. I think yeah. I think Spider Verse is probably going to end up taking it, even though it didn't win the Golden Globe. 
and the Miyazaki movie won that instead. Mm-hmm. Oh, the boy and the heron. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, yeah. Yeah. I always yeah, want to call it the heron like boy. <laughs> I am, yeah. 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 The creator got two nominations, 20th century studios. I did not see that one either. That sort of came the Hulu tells me to watch it every day. And I keep saying no. <laughs> <laughs> I know people who've seen it, who have really liked it. Um, National Geographic got a nomination for um, documentary. Is it Bobby Wine, the People's President? I don't even think I saw that, but I haven't good either. For them. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, an Elemental we already mentioned for um, best animated feature. People were a little surprised. Wish did not get into that category. I, I mean, I wasn't surprised by that. I, I. I still haven't seen Wish, but Elemental seemed like the stronger movie. But it, Ele- Wish, in terms of even the visual style of the movie, if they were going to let in one other animated movie, I would have taken the, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie mm. over Wish. and Because I did see that, and the animation in it was spectacular. And it was it was great storytelling in that movie, even if you're not a fan of the turtles but you know if you're if you're in your 30s and you're male chances are you probably are um i'm i'm sure your son was a oh a fan my of turtles he had too. everything um, turtles everything yeah. <laughs> so, it <yes>. was <laughs> it was very good though it was very very good so yeah wish wish didn't stand a chance i and again i think i think academy voters are going to go for for spider verse anyway so it's another one that's like man it's not okay. it, who who needs the pity nomination? <laughs> yeah, and then Flame and Hot, which I'd never heard of for best musical song, Fire Inside. That's another I know the movie. Picture can't picture the song though, yeah. unfortunately. And then Guardians of the Galaxy got a nomination for uh, Galaxy Volume Three. Got for Marvel got um, one nomination for best visual effects. Yeah. I think this it, was the one where Godzilla minus one also got nominated. Oh, and that, for that oh, I've heard great things about that film. So good. It was so, so good. And then I found out after the fact that they made it for like $15 million. So like, that's even more impressive from a visual effects mm-hmm. category side that they could do that much with that little money compared to however much guardians cost 200 million, probably more. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and Indiana Jones Dial of Destiny under Lucasfilm got um, nominated for Best Music, original score for John Williams. So I I remember the Indiana Jones theme from that movie. I do too. <laughs> That's about all yeah. I remember in terms of the music of that movie. So uh, good for John Williams. <laughs> and then uh, The Last Repair Shop under Searchlight got one nomination for, I think, um, Best Documentary Film short film sure and then and then nai nai and why po says disney branded television disney plus got one nomination also for best documentary short film i've not heard of that that one either we'll try to catch up with it before before the 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 broadcast happens (laughs) people were very disappointed that once upon a studio was not nominated for best animated short Oh yeah, that's a tough one. Like how? Because I mean, technically, there was the live action element to it. So I that's that's it. Kind of falls in between where maybe they didn't know what to do with it to nominate it for animated or 
it would have worked better as a, a live action, but yeah, that's, I, I feel like that's, that's an omission that, that should have won something if it would have yeah. got nominated in the right category. I agree with you because that was just so delightful. The animation was excellent and how they blended, you know, they had the hand drawn characters in there as well as the um, CGI characters and it just all worked so well together. So, yeah, uh, and, and it was a great story. There was a nice little story in there too. And I oh. liked how they kept all the personalities of the, the unique personalities of every character. Yeah, for yeah. sure. I, I, yeah, I, that didn't even cross my mind as you were going over the list. I, yeah, I mean, that's, it would have been eligible for it this year. So that's, that's a shame, but you know, mm-hmm. it's Disney fans will always have it and own it. It doesn't need an award. Yeah. So anyway, so it'll be interesting to see in March what, what wins. So, yeah, I, uh, I, you know, it's definitely Disney's going to win some stuff, but I, I think it showcases how rough of a year it's been for their their film side of things for them. Uh, mm-hmm. It has not been easy going at all. They probably can argue that they haven't put out the quality content that uh, that Disney is usually known for in that way, and when especially when over half of your nominations are for. Uh, from a studio for one movie from a studio that you, you even you took away the fox from it so it's even you have to even stop and think for a second oh yeah it used to be fox searchlight and now it's just searchlight mm-hmm. and fox is owned by disney so it's kind of a rough year but 20 is still something to be proud about yeah yeah absolutely so well, I used several resources for this episode, um, some books, including Walt's Nine Old Men and the Art of Animation by John Canemaker, The Nine Old Men, Lessons, Techniques, and Inspiration from Disney's Great Animators by Andreas Deja, Walt Disney's Nine Old Men, Masters of Animation by Don Hahn and Charles Solomon, some websites and articles I looked at with well, the D23 article on Milt Call. A Milt Call Master Puppeteer by Tracy Timmer for the Walt Disney Family Museum. Milt Call by Jordan Beeks. Career Highlights Milt Call by Eli Sanza for Entertainment Junkie Blog. And also, uh, I've, I mentioned it a little earlier, the Disney Family Album. Say, um, the video on the, the episode they did on Milk Call is on YouTube and it is absolutely worth watching. Um, Sam's Disney Diary, uh, somehow managed, I don't know how he captured these because these were in, this was in the beginning of the Disney Channel when you had to pay for it. And it was, it's a treasure, this series. The opening credits were by John Lasseter and, um, They did an episode on Milt Call. So if you want to meet Milt, maybe not totally the Milt we described today, but but meet Milt and hear him talk about his career and his his process for creating his characters. It is worth watching. And um, so Craig will have um, all of these links in our show description and all that there. So you can take a look at them. So, Craig, until next time, how can our listeners connect with you? 
As always, you can find me on the different shows on the Diz Unlimited podcast network. You can email me, Craig at DisneyInfo.com, and you can find me on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at Teleclaster. What about you, Michael? You can send me messages at MichaelBowling at DisneyInfo.com. On Twitter, I'm at MBowling121. Facebook, I'm MichaelBowling-ConnectingWithWalt. Instagram, I'm MichaelBowlingTheDiz. You can connect with me and Craig on Twitter at ConnectingWalt. If you'd like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes on the link Craig includes in our episode description. And look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, Pandora, and Amazon podcasts, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings when possible. So thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. <laughs> <laughs>